Have you guys actually been following very closely the Taylor Swift moment in American politics? I just heard through the grapevine that Newt Gingrich is telling his own party, knock it off. This is not a very smart target. Don't don't oh, put yourself on the opposite side of Taylor Swift. And I'm thinking, like, duh. I mean, even, even Richard Nixon brought Elvis Presley into the Oval Office. Usually they want to have the pixie dust from these guys Good point. on them, right? Well, the pixie dust is not available at this moment. <laughs> so the question is, look, it, you know, it is the, the hysteria is so amazing. But this is the party that went after Disney. You know, like, mm-hmm. if you're anti-Mickey Mouse, then, you know, <laughs> this what, is what true. can you say? What can you say? It's a small bridge to get to Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's incredible. I I loved the Wall Street Journal editorial about the Taylor Swift PSYOP and their conclusion, which is that it makes the Republican Party look, frankly, Ridiculous. weird. They've, yeah. only, weird. they've <laughs> only just discovered this. I heard them say that their rebuttal is, well, fine, the Democrats have Taylor Swift, but we have Kid Rock and Ted Nugent and John Voight. So that's, I guess, one plus one equals... Zero. (laughs) Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined, as ever, by my colleagues, Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser. And good morning to you both. Hey, Evan. Hey, great to be with you guys. Well, it is only February, but already, believe it or not, we're likely seeing the last real legislative battle of 2024. It is a bill that ties together funding for Ukraine, for Israel, and for increased security at the U.S.-Mexico border. The White House and the Senate have agreed on the broad outlines, but thanks to opposition from Donald Trump, its prospects in the House are shrinking by the hour, which has got the three of us asking, how did we get to this moment? How did we get to this current crisis, both the crisis in Washington and the very human crisis at the border itself? And what does this moment tell us about the role that immigration will play in the 2024 election? Susan, I thought you might start us off by giving folks a little background on this legislative fight. How did this giant bill, this strange combination of elements, come together to incorporate border, Ukraine, and Israel? (laughs) How indeed, Evan. You know, first of all, I think it's worth stipulating that, you know, there really hasn't been a more toxic or irresolvable issue Mm. in recent years in Washington than immigration and the border. And so the prospect that here we are in the middle of this very divisive 2024 election year and this notion that somehow we're going to suddenly come up with this massive bipartisan deal and solve it, I want all of our listeners to, you know, take this with a grain of salt because I think it's very revealing about our politics, but don't necessarily expect that, you know, a solution is around the corner. As far as how it is that Ukraine and and America's commitment to this country in an existential war for its future with Russia, how did that come to be all tangled up? It's a story that goes back to the politics of the fall and what happened in the immediate aftermath of that October 7th uh, terrorist attack in Israel, the resulting war. There was an idea from the Biden administration, we're going to have a big national security bill. We're going to put 
Ukraine funding and Israel funding together. Those are bipartisan. They're supported. And Republicans are demanding action on the border. So we're going to put some additional money in there as well. That's a condition of Republican support. They've been really pressing for this. Absolutely. They said, I remember the language was, you know, we're not going to put money on the border of Ukraine before we protect the border of the United States. Correct. So this seemed like good politics. It's a national security bill. It's a border security bill. But that opened the door to bigger border policy changes. Against all odds, you had two senators, Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, Jim Langford, one of the most conservative Republicans, it should be said. And I have to say, they defied my expectations by actually coming up with a compromise. Biden now appears willing to sign a bill that a Democratic president previously would not, that is, doesn't include any of the traditional Democratic demands in a sweeping immigration bill. And yet, dot, 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 Of course, this week, last week, what we've seen is the big orange man, Donald Trump, rides in and says, no way, please don't take my my border demagoguery away from me. And sure enough, prospects for this package seem unlikely. I mean, and they they wanted it so long as it was a closed door. Mm. But the problem is that they might get yes. And they they really don't want to. They don't. I mean, what we're right. beginning to see is they absolutely do not want to resolve an take... issue that works for them so well politically. At this point, Jane, you've seen a lot of border uh, and immigration debates in Washington. Where do you rate the chances that this thing will actually end up with uh, a change? I think it's really um, apt that we're taping this on Groundhog Day, mm. <laughs> um, you know, because it comes back again and again and again. I, I mean, there have been so many near misses on it, though I actually – you have to go back to 1986 under Reagan when when there actually was a deal struck. Put it this way. I think there's a whole lot more chance yeah. that they strike a deal on taxes, tax cuts for businesses, mm. which is actually what the Republicans want to get, than on immigration, which works for them as a political demagoguery issue, as Susan said. All right. We're going to get back to the politics of immigration later in this episode. But first, we wanted to call a friend, a real expert on this subject, to help us make sense of the deeper roots of what we're seeing now. Jonathan Blitzer is our colleague. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker who covers immigration. And just this week, in fact, he's out with an incredible book called Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. Jonathan Blitzer, welcome to the political scene. Thanks for having me, guys. John, this December, we saw, as you know, more crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border than any month in recorded history. You make the case in your book, really just an extraordinary book, I have to say, you make the case that these crises are uh, misleadingly described to us as these individual acts. As you say, they should be understood as chapters in one longer story. And I wonder if you would give us a sense of that story. What brought us to this crisis from your perspective? And most importantly, why is it happening now? Yeah. I mean, there are two broad ways, I would say, to understand just the continuity of that plot as it's played out at the border. So the first is that essentially every time there's been a a border crisis and a humanitarian emergency there, we've tended to assume that it's the product of some administration's particular policy. And, And obviously, an administration's policies play into it. But when we saw, for instance, a crisis in 2014, a crisis in 2019, a crisis in 2021, Um, In that particular arc, we were dealing with large numbers of Central American children and families coming to the border seeking asylum. Um, And that reflects 
a plot line that honestly goes back to the 1980s. It goes mm. back to civil wars in the region that the U.S. had a hand in. It goes back to American deportation th policy through the 90s that helped create some of the circumstances and conditions in the region that made it so violent and dangerous and which drove people to flee in such large numbers. And so, you know, this is a storyline, obviously, that that has all kinds of moving pieces that that predate the moment when this is when this bursts onto everyone's radar at the southern border. What we're seeing now is also a much more global population. So now, whereas Central Americans in the past tend to, to dominate among those seeking asylum at the border, now we're seeing people coming from Venezuela in extremely high numbers, people coming from elsewhere in South America and from the world. And, and through all of these crises, there's never been a concerted effort to update the immigration system. And so as the world grows increasingly complicated, our immigration policy remains fixed in place. And so in many senses, it's unsurprising that the government would be overwhelmed at a moment like this. So, Jonathan, what about the incredibly, you know, sort of dysfunctional politics of this? Because, you know, there's a there, it's so overheated, right? You have Donald Trump, who is the ultimate demagogue. You know, he, we're always under invasion at the border. right? So it's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. You know, he mm -hmm. doesn't he doesn't make the distinctions you're making between this wave and that <laughs> wave. It's, it's an invasion and it happens every election year, as far as I can tell. Uh, but the numbers have gone way up. Uh, first of all, what do you think of this current legislation? Would it actually, if, if it were to go through as reported, which is highly questionable, but would it make a difference? And why is it that Joe Biden has struggled so much? I could not tell you what his policy is, you know, mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. a full term in office. Yeah. And that's that's been a real problem for the White House. To me, one of the ironies of this current deal, regardless of whether or not it makes it through the Senate, is that I'm not sure the actual terms of the deal in any significant way change the dynamics at the border in terms of the flow of people arriving there. And so, mm. you know, a lot of the elements of the deal are, are very specific policy tweaks that would change, for example, the standard that people have to clear in order to qualify for asylum. But that still requires that the government screen people. And so when you're dealing with the kinds of numbers we're seeing, it's not at all clear to me that this actual deal deals with the broader dynamics that's driving the politics of this. What I do think matters, and that's a part of the conversation, is the numbers being what they are. Um, the administration does need money and resources at the border. And Congress, up to the present moment, has refused to authorize that funding. And so from the White House's perspective, you know, this deal if there's agreement around it, that would then open up funding that allows the government to send more border agents uh, to the southern border. It would, you know, it would allow for a certain measure of efficiency to kick in to at least reduce some of the immediate pressure at the border. But Biden has really struggled from day one in, in messaging on the issue. And to people who follow immigration policy generally, it's been frustrating because there are aspects of the administration's immigration policy that are actually quite laudable. They, they've done a lot to restore the legal immigration system. They've they've stood back up the refugee program after it had been run into the ground by Trump. Um, but from day one, there was such a fear that the border issue would overtake everything else, that there was a real allergy to talking about it. And there, I really think there was a kind of ethos inside the White House, a kind of strategy and a, and a sort of almost worldview, a view of how to play the politics of it, which was the less we talk about this, the better. Any day this is in the news, we lose the news cycle. Um, and so that's one reason, I think, why to this day, a lot of us are scratching our head about, about what the actual administration's message is on the border. And only now are we seeing them start to swing back on it. 
It seems so typical of the problems that the Biden administration's had in terms of messaging, which is that they actually are doing a number of things that they could sell, but they're doing such a poor job of communicating it. But I guess, Jonathan, what I wonder, you know, you've spent so much time and done such amazing work on this subject. Other than the tweaks that you're talking about that won't really resolve the issue, what would it take? as the world starts facing the biggest mass migration issues since World War II? You know, what I think essentially has to be reckoned with, um, and and this is something that the Democrats have to deal with too, um, is people showing up at the southern border are, are claiming asylum, and the vast majority of them, by the terms of asylum law, do not qualify for it. The inescapable reality that a lot of them wouldn't qualify for that protection and the strict legal terms offered by the principle of asylum means that there really need to be solutions that look different, that the border can't be the locus of this policy fix. Uh, and so I think probably, you know, all politics aside, the solution would probably involve doing more to open up legal channels for people to come to the United States um, before they left their home countries and arrived at the southern border. So that would require, I mean, of course, this sounds like a pipe dream as I describe it, I realize, but you know, we're talking about intense international cooperation. We're talking about work that would take probably years, if not decades, but you know, efforts to stand up processing centers, say, for people in the region across Latin America so that they could begin to file their claims uh, to come to the United States before they set out on the journey and arrive at the southern border. So increasingly, I think what the solution is going to have to look like is a more holistic approach to dealing with the flow of people that that moves the processing farther away from the border. Obviously, the border is a part of it, but kind of coming up with other ways to reduce the pressure point at the border itself. A question that is sort of lurking over this entire discussion is how much does what's happening on the ground reflect or respond to the politics here? There's an assumption here, and I don't know if it's true or false. I think it's probably pretty dubious that there is a set of rational calculations going on by people at home who are saying, well, I sense this change in American politics and this is my moment. Or in fact, are they responding to uh, the way that we're talking about immigration and an actual change in, in their possibilities of getting here. If you talk to experts on this and if you talk to actual practitioners at the government agencies along the border that are monitoring these flows of people, I think what all of them will say is anytime there's a kind of global perception of a shift in American policy, there is going to be a moment of opportunism for desperate people seeking entry at the U.S. southern border and for smuggling networks that are trying to game the system and get people into the U.S. And so, you know, I think it was inevitable, we should be frank about it, that when Trump left office, there was going to be, coupled with all of the other things happening in the world, there was going to be a sense of, okay, now is the opportunity. This guy who would not stop talking about how he was going to seal up the border and, you know, brutalize everyone who tried to cross it is finally leaving office. This is a moment. There's always going to be that element to it to people's calculus as to when and how they come. But whether it's a Democrat in office or a Republican in office, the baseline assumption always is the tougher we are at the border, the more we can message to people in the region that they shouldn't come. And and what I've observed over the years is um, that tends to dictate more how people cross, not their overall decision of whether or not they come to the U.S. So Mm. it ends up kind of shaping their tactics, but not their strategy, because what's driving them to leave their home countries in the first place is a kind of desperation. It's a kind of existential threat 
that outweighs or overshadows any particularity of the punishment they might expect at the southern border. There was a moment when Kamala Harris was supposed to be in charge of this issue, and her approach was to some extent to say this is a supply-side problem, and we need to deal with the issues in the countries where the people are coming from. And everyone laughed at it and said, ha ha, you know, this is, you know, pie in the sky. But apparently it did work to some extent in a couple of the countries, and I'm wondering, is that the approach that works better, or is there any evidence it works better, or is that pie in the sky? In terms of practical solutions that meet the political uh, requirements of the moment for, you know, rapid action um, that allows an administration to withstand partisan attacks, I I, I don't know that there's going to be a a solution in terms of supplying more aid to the region. The, The problem that I think people keep running into is the politics are so partisan on this that you get these intense swings from one administration to another. And if you were going to deal with root causes, what you would need is some continuity of vision about, you know, why that's a priority, why dealing with root causes is a priority. And I just think in our political landscape, it's been untenable, even if, you know, to the experts, that that is what totally makes sense. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought it back to that because the difference right now is that not only are we in election year, but what the change that I see is that you have increasingly Democrats and, you know, big city mayors and governors uh, from blue America joining in and saying, forget about like, you know, this pie in the sky stuff, as Jane put it. We are in a crisis right now. And first of all, it's a crisis that has a serious potential for political backlash, uh, not only for President Biden's reelection, but across the country. Uh, cities are feeling the heat from this. Uh, and I think that's something really different. I mean, this time what you have is many Democrats saying enough is enough. Like, let's be real here. Whatever we're doing, it's not working because the numbers are going up and up. I agree completely. I think that's I think the most dramatic shift that we're seeing right now, you know, aside from the kind of migratory phenomenon itself, is in the Democratic politics around the issue. I mean, there's mm. no question that that is the most striking change. And and you can really almost date it to a particular moment in time, which was when the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, started busing asylum seekers to blue cities. Texans are fed up with what the Biden administration has done on our border, the chaos that has caused, the damage that has caused in the state of Texas. And that is exactly uh, why we are sending these illegal immigrants to places like Washington, D.C. and New York City. Deliberately trying to sow chaos without preparing local officials ahead of time, intending to overwhelm municipal and state resources. And I think, you know, the administration was somewhat slow to respond to that as a political threat. So the border problem became a problem for, you know, mayors in Chicago, in Denver, in New York. And I think that's exerted real pressure on the White House. You know, you used to, to Jane's point earlier, what you typically see in the way of kind of, you know, run of the mill American political rhetoric on immigration is you'd see an American official travel to a region in Latin America and say, sometimes in Spanish, if we were lucky, don't come. (laughs) And that Mm. would be the kind of ritual. Um, And now what you're seeing, and this is a major shift, is you're seeing the president quite literally saying, sure, I'll shut down the border, which is a sea change. I mean, he campaigned on, on quite literally the opposite in 2020. And so, you know, sure, the actual logistics of shutting down the border. It's a, it's, it's a practical impossibility. But again, no one's, no one's concerned with what that looks like. It's more about 
sending that message. And the idea that Democrats now are comfortable saying something that stark is, I think, a real reflection of how much things have shifted. You've spent so much time on both sides of the border going to places where people are making these day-to-day decisions about when to come and, and, and what they hope to achieve. And at the same time, thinking about the politics here in Washington, I wonder just personally for you, when you talk to people like your friends, people who are listening to this show and they say to you, this problem feels impossible to me. I don't know how to reconcile my, on the one hand, instinct to want to have a humane policy as a country. And on the other hand, recognizing that this is heading in a direction that is just logistically and statistically impossible. How do you reconcile it? And, and what do you hope people will understand that they might not uh, immediately know from what they see in the newspaper? You know, it's so overwhelming because I think, you know, there's a desire among people who follow this stuff closely to almost mute the politics of it so that they can address the the very complex realities of, you know, mass migration, of border administration, all the rest. Um, But I think, you know, the kind of one takeaway, and it maybe sounds obvious, is you can't outrun the politics on this. You have to be serious about the political moves necessary to create space for those policy changes. So so I, I guess the conversations I tend to, to be having now are more oriented toward, okay, how do we kind of turn the temperature down a little bit on the political rhetoric insofar as it's possible so that there can be a little bit more of a level-headed conversation around these issues? Well, we haven't done any shouting here. We've had, as you say, a level-headed conversation. Thanks to you, John <laughs> Blitzer. Thank all you. the conversations. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jonathan. Great to see you. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll look in more detail at the politics of this issue here in Washington. Listening to the way John has gone back and looked at this history, it does not make you feel as if we are on the cusp of an easy solution, to say the least. <laughs> when he talks about uh, we should just turn down the conversation, let's just have a little bit of a reality check here in 2024 with the campaign the way that it is, the volume will be going up and not down on this. We don't know exactly what will happen on Capitol Hill, (laughs) but we do know that. I do think he's right, though, that there's been a shift in opinion that's very interesting in the Democratic Party. There's an overall growing understanding that ignoring this issue yeah. was not a smart idea. And they've got to, they've got to change the rhetoric at the very least. Um, and, and you look at the polls and you can see that that's absolutely true. I mean, that, that basically it's a terrible issue for Biden right now. He's got 18 percent of voters think that he's handling it. Well. I remember somebody once saying to me years ago uh, in a conversation about how Joe Biden works, somebody worked with him in the White House, said, you know, the thing you have to remember is that he is an almost perfect weather vane for the center of the Democratic Party. And that is a useful indicator. So when he is sensing that it's time to make an abrupt move on this, it's because his fingertip feel is saying this is where my party is. And by the way, this is not just a messaging problem for the Biden White House. Mm. Uh, It's not like on the economy where you can say, look, there's a whole bunch of things that he's done that, you know, really the politics has lagged behind or that he hasn't gotten credit for it. In this situation, their policy is not succeeding in addition to the fact that – they 
don't have a discernible message up until now around it. So I really appreciated Jonathan's efforts to help us sort of untangle where Congress literally hasn't provided resources to execute and things like that. But I wish it were as simple as sort of saying, well, well, we need like a better messenger. We need a better slogan here. But uh, the reason Democratic mayors and Democratic governors are getting upset about this is because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people overwhelming the ability of their cities to handle them and to incorporate them, that we are having a big problem. It's just it's painful to think that the conservative demagogues on this issue sort of outplayed people, sending immigrants first to, to Martha's Vineyard and then to the the Blue Cities, that that, that cheap trick sort of worked. But, but, I mean, I was interested that Jonathan thinks that there actually are things that Biden's been doing yeah. that are not getting any attention. And also, I mean, it seems to me that there's a, there's a political opening for him that would be obvious, which is to blame the Republicans in Congress for not funding the issue that they say they care most about. I mean, this, that, and this is the position he's in now. He's got an opening. Can he Can he play it? Well, it's there incredible. Is, I mean, there Trump is, this, is playing right into his hands in a way, right? Well, totally. I mean, there comes a point when he is saying uh, that the Republicans will not take yes for an answer. He's finally giving them exactly what they wanted. And now it turns out, and they're saying it explicitly, yeah. that they won't do it because they say, we don't want to give this guy a bump in his approval ratings. In some ways, I guess, Susan, I wonder whether Americans hear that and say, OK, I'm going to call the what the Republicans are doing what it is, which is a just a desperately cynical approach. You know, Evan, what I would just say, and I, I, I'm glad you brought up this this issue of Biden and his approach to the border, because aren't Democrats playing into the cynicism as well? I mean, Democrats as well as Republicans, they got sucked into, you know, a very misleading farce in an election year. And for me, pulling back, I obviously spent a lot of time, pay a lot of attention to what's happening with the war in Ukraine, the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. The idea that we would hold America's most significant national security priorities hostage to this, it, it just, it, it, it is such a blow. I cannot overstate this. It's such a blow to American prestige and credibility, not only internally, but around the world. The idea that President Biden says we're going to be with Ukraine as long as it takes, and that somehow we sort of got locked into holding the fate of Ukraine hostage to an impossible border negotiation. But I, I want to make sure I understand. Are you, Donald are you, Trump's party? Here's my question. Are you blaming the Republicans who forced him to do that? Or are you blaming Biden for saying, OK, if we have any hope of getting a, a Ukraine I'm blaming bill? both of them. Absolutely. And I think that politically speaking, I mean, I've heard very senior administration officials, by the way, say this to me. They're not going to say it on the record. They're not going to go on television. You know what? I had a senior official uh, whom we all know sit next to me three days ago and say, we effed this up. We effed this up, Evan. And In what sense do you think? Well, first of all, it was a mistake and a kind of predictable mistake to say in the fall, well, we're going to go ahead and lump all these things together. And, you know, you could sort of see on paper where it made sense. But again, you know, these guys are political professionals. They're very, you know, it's their do, job to understand. What would you do differently, do you think, if you were saying, OK, here, let's let's go back to that moment. So you've got the Republicans are saying we will do nothing on Ukraine without doing something on the border. 
Susan, what do you do at that point? How do you strategize that? Well, I mean, look, the original sin in many ways was not having pushed through a Ukraine funding bill earlier. And there were many, many supporters of Ukraine who said all last summer, remember, they uh, Congress actually hasn't passed uh, any kind of funding for Ukraine in more than a year. Why? And uh, well, that's a good question. But isn't that's it because question. Republicans have made it no, impossible? No, over the summer, in fact, there was an enormous opportunity and window. They were told by many Republicans as well as Democrats, now's your moment. You should be doing this before the 2024 politics kicks in. And they said, we got this, we got this. And they sent it up to Congress in the middle of their August recess. Uh, and then came a huge fight in September over the annual funding bills, which, by the way, is still unresolved. And so there was no action taken on it. And then came the meltdown of the House Republican majority. And so there was no action. And that's a classic example of like you waited too long and sort of the window that you thought was going to be there wasn't going to be there. But again, to pull back now it's just sort of a mess in which the best hope is the one that Mitch McConnell articulated the other day, which is, well, if this border thing is going to go down, hopefully then we can move separately on these uh, national security priorities. So you'd be right back in a way at, at the beginning of the story. Jane, what do you – so Susan, I think, well described. She puts the uh, burden of this at the feet of the of the Biden administration no, no, for no, a kind I, of legislative I malpractice, right? I, I think that's a little bit not fair. I mean, Republicans have, you know – are literally saying we're against a deal that we were in favor of making. So I think there's blame to go around. But that's my point, is that both sides uh, got into this mess. Do you think at this point, Jane, that um, there is a way in which this has a, a political effect that ultimately redounds, strangely enough, to the Democrats' benefit? I, I, th- I see the possibility there. But, I mean, the, the problem for the Democrats is that Democrats are the party of governing that believes in, in government. So when there's dysfunction and an inability to resolve all of these huge issues, it really undercuts the, the basic core belief of, of that this is, these are the grown-ups. They know how to run the government. They know how to protect American interests abroad and at home. You know, so all these things are much more dangerous for Democrats when things get this dysfunctional in a way, even, and which isn't fair because, it, you know, you've got this kind of kamikaze wing of the Republicans in the House and they're, they're setting out very deliberately to destroy government. And they're, they're pretty good at it because of the way our system works. You can really blow things up if you're really determined to. And that's what they've been doing. Anyway, there is an opening there, though. I I, do think. I mean, I think in all of this, partly because it's so clearly irresponsible what what the Republicans are doing. And and at the end of the day, I think Biden's got a a pretty good argument to make. We met them. Mm. We came up with something. They didn't want it because they don't want to solve problems. They want to keep this issue alive right. in the 2024 election. Right. And Susan, I think we cannot have this conversation without remembering what it is that Trump is saying he would do on immigration. What has he said? What has Stephen Miller said about what they would do in the event that they uh, they win the White House and take control of immigration policy? Well, I believe one of his favorite now, Donald Trump's favorite uh, applause lines in his rallies as he campaigns to return to the White House is literally the line like, the arrests will begin on day one of my presidency, the mass deportations. He's talking about setting up gigantic camps of uh, 
uh, migrants as he deports them. He's talking about doing extremely controversial and even legally dubious things like ending birthright citizenship. This was a sort of a a perpetual threat that he wielded uh, during his term in the White House, never actually followed through with it. It's very unclear that it would uh, be legal. Obviously, it would be tied up in the courts. That's the kind of thing he might follow through on. Uh, You know, he had... uh, enormous number of proposals that were so extreme in his first term in the White House that even many of his own officials blocked them. They told him it would be illegal. He proceeded uh, in the case of family separation anyways uh, before eventually pulling back. And by the way, even after he abandoned that family separation policy after there was this enormous national outcry, he repeatedly then returned to it. And he kept saying to his age, well, why don't we do that again? Uh, Mm. Why don't we restart that? So I wouldn't even rule out family separation once again. So Donald Trump, it seems to me, fervently believes that immigration is the reason that he became president of the United States in 2016, that it was this kind of appeal to base instincts, this kind of anti-immigration, anti-brown people sentiment that he stirred up in his base. And that's a reason why he uses it very reliably in every election year. So he's not going to dial down the temperature Well, and I would this. point out, interestingly, in 2018, when they did try to spin up fears about an a quote-unquote, caravan coming to the border, it actually didn't work very well. They got trounced in that midterm election. And I think that can be both encouraging for people who are looking out across the American electorate and wondering, oh, are we succumbing to the Trumpist philosophy uh, to be reminded, actually, no, that when you call it what it is, when essentially, the, you know, to use the phrase, when, when cruelty is the point, that there is a way in which that clashes with something underlying in American Well, also, it's just Jonathan pointed out, I think very importantly, after the family separations, there was an uptick in migration. So these these sort of theatrical hate displays work for him politically, but they actually are not a border policy. They don't actually work, and it didn't work under Trump. The one thing that actually worked in terms of numbers was COVID, when mm. they just basically said, we're not letting anybody in because of it's a right. health they issue. Used they used emergency powers. That, that, that was the only thing that actually made a difference Although, in terms of numbers. And I do think the politics, though, are something that has changed uh, from even Trump's term in office. And if you look at recent surveys, they suggest that it's not just the kind of televised concerns of a few Democratic big city mayors who are dealing with uh, unexpected floods of migrants. But in fact, the numbers, there was just a survey out this week, and it's, it's comparable to other surveys in the six or seven key battleground states that are really going to decide this 2024 election, because it's not a 50-state election. It's going to come down once again to six or seven battleground states. And in those states, you have two things that have to be very worrying to the White House. Number one, you have a pretty significant increase in the numbers of voters who are saying that immigration is a top or the top issue for them. And then number two, Biden's results with those voters who are saying this is a real issue are are very, very bad. I just think I think we all hope that that there's a way to have a a humane policy on this that doesn't exhaust everybody 
And I think we were sort of on the edge of exhaustion on it. So, so uh, basically, the search for a decent and sensible policy. Yeah. Will we continue searching? Eternal. There it does. <laughs> well, thank you guys for, for hashing it out with us. Always a pleasure to be with you. Well, great to be with you guys. Thank you so much. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Stephanie Kariyuki. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much for listening.